Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the book of Amos. We are getting to the end. We are in the last chapter today of Amos, Amos chapter 9. There are nine chapters. Uh, And Lord willing, after today, we'll have two more messages in Amos, and then we will be uh, concluding it. So, uh, Amos chapter 9, we'll be looking at the first 10 verses today. Let's go ahead and open up in a word of prayer. Thank you, God, for your grace to us and your faithfulness. We pray that you might help us as we look at yet another portion of the book of Amos where we see the seriousness of divine wrath, that you'd help us to be thankful for the mercy that's available in Christ All of us, all of us deserve divine judgment. And you have been kind to us, not at the expense of your holiness, but through the fulfillment of it. And so we thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen. Thomas Costain's history, The Three Edwards, described the life of Reynald III, a 14th century duke in what is now Belgium. Grossly overweight, Reynald was commonly called by his Latin nickname Crassus, which means fat. After a violent quarrel, Reynald's younger brother Edward led a successful revolt against him. Edward captured Reynald but did not kill him. Instead, he built a room around Reynald in the Newark Castle and promised him he could regain his title and property as soon as he was able to leave the room. This would not have been difficult for most people since the room had several windows and a door of near normal size, and none was locked or barred. The problem was Reynald's size. To regain his freedom, he needed to lose weight. But Edward knew his older brother, and each day he sent a variety of delicious foods. Instead of dieting his way out of prison, Reynald grew fatter. When Duke Edward was accused of cruelty, he had a ready answer. My brother is not a prisoner. He may leave whenever he wills. Reynald stayed in that room for 10 years and was not released until after Edward died in battle. By then, his health was so ruined, he died within a year, a prisoner of his own appetite. One person has well said, humans instinctively oppose the very change they desire. It is a curious thing indeed that you and I will do things that we know, that we know on the front end will lead to our own unhappiness. You see, of course, this in our opening illustration. Reynold knew that eating more food would lead to his further imprisonment, and yet he continued to eat. People today do the same thing. We are uh, willing to eat more food, knowing that it will lead to further unhappiness. Likewise, people take drugs 
knowing full well that it will lead to further unhappiness. It's not a knowledge problem. People know that this destroys things. People look at pornography, knowing that it will lead to greater unhappiness and destruction in their own marriages. They know this. We do these kinds of things in a thousand different ways. Husbands dismiss the emotional needs of their wives and their children for football, knowing full well that they will pay for it with interest tomorrow. Wives dismiss the needs of their husbands and children for Pinterest, knowing full well that they will pay for it with interest tomorrow. And getting a hold of our passions and getting a hold of our desires and discipling our desires and our wants so that we are the Lord over our desires instead of being their slave, getting a hold of that is a very, very difficult task for the Christian. C.S. Lewis once wrote, People, you and I among them, constantly choose between two courses of action, the one which we know to be the worse, because at the moment we prefer the gratification of our anger, lust, sloth, greed, vanity, curiosity, or cowardice, not only to the known will of God, but even to what we know will make for our own real comfort and security. Lewis is saying that in perhaps a heated moment of anger or a moment of lust or a moment of laziness, we act on that desire and we act on that passion knowing that it will destroy the people around us and it will even destroy our own selves because at that moment, the desire to satisfy that passion is strong. We read in Galatians 6 and verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. You reap what you sow. If you waste all morning on social media, don't be surprised when you can't make the afternoon deadlines, so to speak. The biblical answer to this is not a complex web of understanding secular psychological definitions and understanding the DSM-5 and understanding all this kind of stuff. There's no complexity to it. The answer to these problems is fairly straightforward. It simply is repentance. Simply is, I have sinned, I know I've done wrong, I did it because I wanted to do it, and I will repent because of that. We also see furthermore that Galatians 5.16 gives us uh, a bit of a, a direction here on understanding how to overcome these particular sins and more, because in Galatians 5.16 we read that if we walk by the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We must bridle our desires. Desire in itself is not a sinful thing. Desire is behind a thousand goods, right? The desire to start a family is a good thing. Uh, The desire to nourish your family through sustaining and delicious food is a good thing. Desire is a good thing, but desire must be bridled 
it must be your servant and not your master. I heard an illustration one time that I think helps to capture this idea very well. And think of it as uh, compare your desires to a horse. Your desires can be compared to a horse. uh, And um, your horse can either be useful or useless depending on how in control of it you are as the rider. Uh, A horse that uh, bucks and kicks and runs here and runs there and is out of control is chaotic. We wouldn't say, well, the solution to that horse, his problems is to give him tranquilizers. He's just too out of control. No, that's not the solution to the horse's problem. The solution is he needs to put a bridle on his desires. He needs to, put a, he needs to be directed to go here and to go there and to bring order out of chaos. And that is the same thing that is true with our own desires. That we are not to, we, we, we don't dismiss our desires as evil, although some desires are evil. But we do take our desires and we bridle them. We control them. The goal then for you is to become a good rider. It is to manage that horse well. Your job as a rider is not to kill the horse, but to train your horse, to bridle your horse. And in the same way, your job as a Christian, one of your jobs, is to bridle your desires and to rule over them instead of permitting them to rule over you. Israel refused to do this. Hence the book of Amos. They had desires that were out of control. They had desires for wealth. They had desires for comfort, which in and of itself, these things are not necessarily wrong, but they were willing to, to, to kill, to um, oppress people, all of these kinds of things in order to get their desires fulfilled. They had no bridle on their desires. They refused, even after the Lord confronted them again and again and again and again. And therefore, we see very clearly the destruction that comes from refusing to bridle your own desires. Amos chapter 9, verses 1 through 10, is a theological survey of four attributes of God couched or or given to us in a very real historical event that happened. I think we can see this as uh, I'll demonstrate through the outline that we have today. Four attributes of God. God is judge, he is omnipresent, he is omnipotent, and he is mercy. Let's read this passage together. Amos chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away, not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol from there, shall my hand take them. If they climb up into heaven... From there, I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Caramel, I will, from there, I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes on them for evil and not for good. 
The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve. But no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say, Disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Now, in order to fully appreciate verse 1. One must go back to the opening verse of the prophecy of Amos. We read in Amos chapter 1, in verse 1, the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And this last phrase is what I want to focus in on and draw your attention to two years before the earthquake. This statement is relevant for Amos 9 because in Amos 9, in verse 1, the Lord says that, the thre- that he will shake the thresholds. God promises, I'm going to shake temple thresholds two years later, earthquake. Add to that what we saw last week, and that was that we saw that there was also an eclipse that happened after this time, after the Lord said he would darken uh, the, the day, and we had an eclipse happen. God is not trying to be cryptic about anything. I'm going to darken the sun. I'm going to shake the thresholds of the temple, sends an eclipse, sends an earthquake. God is trying to get the attention of his people Israel. He's saying, wake up, look at what's going on around you. And so thorough will this destruction be that you can see at the end of verse 1 a rather chilling statement, nobody will escape. In fact, those who do escape will be killed with a sword. Therefore, none will flee or escape. God's judgment will be swift, it will be sure, and it will be complete. Some may read this verse and uh, respond to it and say, well, what if I could hide from the Lord? What what, what if I was able to hide from, from God? Then I could escape his wrath. But the next section tells us clearly that this cannot happen because God is not only judge, he is omnipresent. He's not a judge running around saying, I lost the suspect. Okay, He's not sending out patrols saying, look for him here and look for him there. Maybe we could find him there. Oh, we're at, we came up in the hand and I don't know where he is. I guess we won't be able to. That happens on earth. Someone escapes from prison. Uh, someone uh, eludes the authorities and they don't pay their time. But that does not happen with the Lord because he is omnipresent. If I could summarize verses 2 through 4 for you, I would summarize them by simply saying this. 
verses 2 through 4, is teaching us there is no safe space. There's no safe location you could go to. The idea of a safe space is an illusion. It is a mirage. It is something that is impossible for us to get a hold of. In verse 2, we read, If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb into heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them, and I will fix my eyes on them for evil and not for good. Does this passage, are there any other passages in the Bible that this reminds you of? Can you think of another passage where God says, if you go here, I'll know about it, and if you go there, I'll know about it, and if you go there, 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 there. Psalm, anyone know? 139. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. Look at the, the parallel that we have here between Psalm 139 and Amos 9. Okay? We read this. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, there you are. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. You have a striking similarity between these two passages. And that similarity is that in both situations, you cannot escape God's hand. Okay? But there is a striking difference in these two passages. Both Amos 9 and Psalm 139 teach us of God's omnipresence. Okay? But what is the difference? God's divine omnipresence, the fact that God is everywhere at the same time, is either a terror or a good or joy. One of those two things. For the Christian, God's omnipresence is a source of comfort, Psalm 139. Knowing that God will never lose you. You can't go anywhere, and God is not there. God is always there. This comforts me as a Christian, because I know I'm never going to fall into the hands of the enemy, and they will do with me whatever they will outside of God's sovereign control. No, God's there, and he's 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 there. Yet for the unbeliever, God's omnipresence is a terror because they can never get away from God. can never get away from God. Even in hell, the unbeliever cannot escape God. I think somehow in uh, evangelicalism, American evangelicalism, the idea has circulated that hell is place... Uh, God's absence, God is totally removed from that place. Revelation 14 and verse 10. Revelation 14, 10 says that those in hell will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the Lamb. Hell is God expressing his wrath and his anger. The joy of heaven is that you cannot get away from God. 
The terror of hell is that you cannot get away from God. In both situations, God is there, but one is a joy and one is a terror. The terror of Amos 9 is that you cannot get away from God. The joy of Psalm 139 is that you cannot get away from God. A terror to the unbeliever and a joy to the believer. And you see here that this theme of not being able to get away from God is given to us, um, if you want to talk about the literary structure of Amos 9, through a series of, of merisms, okay? This is simply uh, a literary device, if you will, where you give two polar opposites And you give these two polar opposites as a way of saying and everything in between. Okay? So when you lose your car keys and you cannot find them, you say, I looked high and low for those keys and I could not find them anywhere. Okay? What you're not saying, okay? Now, now, the child who has never heard that statement before, might say, you looked high and low. Well, I know what your problem is, Daddy. you got to look in the middle places too. No, 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 no. <laughs> what, when you say, I looked high and low, you don't mean I only looked in all the places high. I looked on the top of all the kitchen cabinets. <laughs> and I only looked low under the couch. <laughs> no, no, you mean I looked everywhere. I looked high, I looked low, and I looked everywhere in the middle. So that's an expression that means simply, I looked everywhere for them. And that's what's going on in this particular example. You see that in verse 2, if you hide in Sheol or in heaven, God will find you. Okay, This does not mean that all the other places are safe places to hide from God. It's like he's saying high and low. You can hide in heaven, you can hide in Sheol, or anywhere in between, and I will find you. There's no place to hide. Verse 3, of course, says the same thing. You can hide at the top of Mount Carmel, or you can hide at the bottom of the sea. And, by implication, anywhere in between. He's not saying he's only looking at the top of this mountain and only in the bottom of the sea, but he knows everywhere in between. If you hide on top of uh, Mount Carmel, God will search you out and take you. If you hide at the bottom of the sea, what does it say God's going to (laughs) do? I'm, I'm sovereign over the sea snakes, too. I'll just tell them to bite you. There's, there's, there's no place you can go. And the same, of course, is in verse 4. Even in captivity, I mean, you would think in captivity, okay, I'm in captivity, but finally, I'm at least safe. If you think to yourself, finally, I'm safe in captivity, even the sword will find them because God is fixing his eyes on them for evil and not for good. And the same, of course, is true for us. For those of us who love God, the the presence of God is what to you? It is a comfort. For those who hate God, the presence of God is a terror. And for that person, those who hate the Lord, no safe space can be found. You are not safe hiding in your home. You're not safe hiding in a bunker. You're not safe on the move. You're not safe in an isolated island. You're not safe in the bush of Alaska. 
You're not safe hiding in the woods of Canada. You're not safe in the moon. You're not safe on Mars. There's no place where you can go that you're safe. And not even in the safe spaces across American colleges, though equipped with coloring books and videos of frolicking puppies, even those places, you're not safe. Because God is where? He's everywhere. There is no place where you can get away from God's hand. You can't build a rocket ship that will go far enough through space to where you finally are out of the grasp of divine sovereignty. Can't. We know this is true in part because he's all-powerful. His, his power, out of that flows his omnipresence. And so that's what we see in verses 5 through 6, that God is omnipotent, or we might say all-powerful. This is the lesson from verses 5 through 6. We read here in what some consider a hymn that kind of interrupts the flow of this passage. Interjection here of we're going along, we're learning about God judging, and then all of a sudden a hymn singing and declaring the power of God interrupts the flow. This is a list of divine attributes and divine works. The lesson from this verse or these verses is summed up in Psalm 115, verse 3, a verse worth memorizing. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We've seen this, of course, at the nine o'clock service as we are working through the book Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. We understand that God is sovereign and he does whatever he wants to do. God merely has to touch the earth in verse 5. You see that in verse 5? God just merely puts his finger on the earth, and what happens? The whole earth melts. That's how powerful he is. God directs the earth like he directs the Nile. Those who dwell here on the earth mourn because of God's action. God's upper chamber is in heaven and his vault is on the earth. He takes the waters of the sea and pours them on the earth as he pleases. Like you take a teaspoon, the waters of the sea, it's like a teaspoon and the Lord just scoops it up and he pours it wherever he wants to pour it. What is his name? You see that at the end of this section here? It is the Lord. I love that this little hymn in verses 5 through 6 concludes with that statement that the Lord is his name. The Lord is the one who is strong and powerful in this kind of a way. One might think of this section, verses 5 through 6, as uh, one of Tolkien's many songs dispersed throughout his narratives. You know, you're kind of going along and then there's a song here and a song here. And it's, it's kind of like the same kind of idea here. We are walking along innocently, so to speak, through Amos. And then all of a sudden we're confronted by sovereign divine power. It just hits us. God is holy and yet he's also personal. 
And while one might be tempted to despair because of this holy God, this powerful God, one must remember that God is not only a God of wrath, but also a God of mercy. And we see that in the next section here. God is mercy. Now, when you read verses 7 through 10, you might at first say, how did you get God is mercy out of this? Because I still see more judgment in here. But I do want to kind of focus and draw our attention to one phrase in particular in a moment. There is, I would suggest to us, a glimmer of divine mercy. We see, first of all, of course, in verse 7, that God says, Israel, is, you're just like the Cushites to me. That, that's crushing. I thought, we, I thought we were something special. Oh, you're just like the Cushites to me. Ah. God, in fact, he actually tells and look at verse 7. Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? I've delivered other nations too. Not just Israel. You aren't the only ones who have been recipients of divine mercy. I've done this for others as well. Israel then is nothing special. Israel has placed, we see this is a perennial problem for Israel. Israel continues again and again and again throughout the Old Testament. Going into the New Testament, we see this specifically in the ministry of Christ where he debunks this idea. In Israel's um, trust has frequently, frequently been in their pedigree. I have Israelite blood in my veins. <laughs> Lord, I've been merciful to them, 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 them. You're just like Cushites to me. Ah, that's a blow. One application for us is not to presume upon divine grace. In verse 8, we see that God's hand is against sinful nations and that he will destroy these sinful nations. And I want us to look at this verse here. We see, behold, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground except... Circle, underline... Highlight the word except. Except. Except what? I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. The key phrase here is the phrase, I will not utterly destroy. You know what that is? That's a glimmer of mercy. A glimmer of hope. You might recall earlier in Amos chapter 3 and verse 12, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Ah. This, Amos 3.12, is pretty harsh. But even in that, there's going to be a remnant. There's going to be, a, there's going to be a, a glimmer of hope for those who will seek the Lord and live. You remember that we have been talking about the fact that the Lord continues to emphasize, seek me and live, seek me and live, seek me and live. And even though the whole nation is going down, there can be individuals within that nation, a remnant that the Lord is preserving for his own mercy, his own grace, his own providence. That, Amos 3.12, I would suggest to us, is foreshadowing 
to the end of the book. And this hope is reemphasized in verses 9 through 10. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. I, I said um, that verses 9 through 10 is hopeful, and that might sound a little bit odd, but the reason that this is hopeful is because everybody will get their just reward. God will sift the nation like one sifts wheat with a sieve, okay? I don't know if anyone has a sieve hanging in their garage for any kind of purpose. Probably not, okay? But you can at least picture the little kid's plastic toy, right, that they put in the sandbox, right? And maybe you get a bunch of pebbles in the sandbox, and you bring this up and you shake it, and the pebbles remain inside of that, and then all the sand falls through, and then you could throw the pebbles out. That's exactly what's going on here. The Lord is saying, I'm going to take the nation like a sieve. And he says, not one pebble will fall out. I'm going to put the whole nation in a sieve and I'm going to shake the sieve. And all those who deserve wrath and judgment, I will have. And all those who, will, who deserve mercy because of God's grace will receive it. He knows the righteous from the wicked. He knows down to the last person. God is punishing specifically in verse 10, those who say disaster shall not overtake us. He's especially concerned to make sure they get their punishment because what are those people doing? They're sinning with arrogance. I can do whatever I want to do and disaster will not overtake me. And the Lord is saying, you are one of the pebbles that will not fall to the ground when I shake you with a sieve. I will hold all of you accountable. Now, the reason that I said, one of the reasons I said this section is hopeful is because the corollary is also true. If God knows down to the last man those who are the pebbles, he knows down to the last man those who will be spared. And this is the hope that we see in Amos God is preserving a remnant. He's not going to utterly destroy the nation. One is reminded of Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 2, where the prophet Habakkuk pleads to God, and he says, God, in wrath, remember mercy. That's what you have in Amos. He's remembering his mercy in his wrath. We see this on the cross too, right? In wrath, remember mercy. God is pouring out his wrath on Christ, and yet he's remembering his mercy by preserving people for his own name's sake. God, in spite of his fierce anger, is preserving a remnant. He is sparing people from destruction. He is forgiving people of iniquities. But we have to remind ourselves of the phrase, I will not utterly destroy. What does I will not utterly destroy mean? It means that there's going to be a lot of destruction. I just won't take it to the final step. Does not the New Testament teach us this same reality? 
we see in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 14, for example. You can actually write that in the margin next to Amos 9, in verse 9. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. One of the great tragedies of this world is that few people will be saved. Few people will be rescued and redeemed. Many, many people will go to hell. I want to warn you of something to be careful of. I'm going to read to you one commentator who tells the all-too-common approach. Some of you may have heard someone say something like this before. You share the gospel with someone, and they may say, I still have time to repent. I want to read you what this commentator says. He, He gives a list of excuses. He says, I will repent hereafter. I will make my peace with God before I die. There's time enough yet. Youth is for pleasure, age for repentance. God will forgive the errors of youth and the heat of our passions. Any time will do for repentance. Health and strength promise long life. I cannot do without this or that now. I will turn to God only not yet. God is merciful and full of compassion. Some people say, you may have heard the phrase before, that hell, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? And I would suggest to us that the road to hell is also paved with people who had plans to make amends with the Lord before they died. How many of those people are strewn along the road? People who said, I will repent later. And then later, never came. You've heard the phrase before, the same sun that softens the wax, hardens the clay. If you won't repent today, what makes you think you will repent tomorrow? If you don't repent today, it is more likely that your heart will be one step harder tomorrow than it was today. And anyway, death might come on you suddenly when you least expect it. Then, how are you going to make amends with the Lord? So, where do we go with this passage here today? In the opening, we discussed how we would do well as Christians, through the help of Christ, to bridle our desires so that we are not objects of God's wrath. We see Israel refuse to bridle their desires. They refuse to repent. They refuse to believe. They just let their, their desires and passions go wild. You had an entire nation of untrained horses just running with no bridles on every which way, and it only created chaos. We are to bridle our desires, to bring our desires and our passions into subjection under the lordship of Christ, which happens through repentance and faith in Christ alone. Before you are a believer, you don't have the bridle at all. You 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 don't have the equipment to control your horse. It's not available to you. It's not accessible to you. You are by default the slave, and the horse is by default the master, and there is no getting out of that without Christ. 
When you become a Christian, you now are given the equipment to be able to do this. You have a bridle now in your possession. The Bible gives us instructions on how we are to use it, how we are to temper ourselves, how we are to self-control, and how we are to do all these kinds of things. You have, in Christ, because of the doctrine of union with Christ, all of the equipment necessary to obey Christ today. Now, I understand, and we talk a lot about the fact that sanctification is a lifelong process, and it is that, okay? But that is not an excuse even for the Christian to delay in your obedience. Well, it just takes time for these things to work itself out. You have everything you need right now to obey fully right now because of union with Christ. We can look at a book like Amos and find a lot of discouragement. In fact, we might say, along with the psalmist in Psalm 77.9, as, as we've kind of worked through this very hard, dense portion of Scripture, the book of Amos, for the past several weeks, as we work through that together, you might cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 77.9, Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? There may be some people who read the book of Amos and they may scratch their head a little bit and say, that doesn't sound like God to me. It is God. It's the same one. The same God in Amos. This is Jesus Christ in Amos exercising his divine wrath. The same Jesus who says, come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy burdened. God has not forgotten to be gracious. We cannot make that conclusion. When we look at the book of Amos, we see a God who is giving his people every chance to repent again and again and again and again. And we see his faithfulness and that he provides an opportunity to seek him. And then he guarantees that a remnant will be preserved. When I read Amos, I'm not surprised at the totality of God's wrath and destruction. I'm surprised that there's as much left when he's done as there is. Are you, are you serious? There's a sliver. Why did that sliver not burn up too? One word, mercy. He could have burnt. He could have burnt it up. He could have. He didn't have to send Christ. He didn't have to make a way for us. He gives us every chance, and we spit in his face again and again and again. And to those who spit in his face, he takes a remnant of those and says, "I will save you." How how can we possibly put into words the mercy of God when He has done this for us? Today, this remnant in the New Testament, this remnant that God has created, it is the church. You, you, read, you read Amos or you look at Psalm 77, 9 and you say, has God forgotten to be gracious? Okay, open up your eyes. Look around. There's people here in this room right now who are testimonies of divine grace. 
You eat, we could go around, each one of you. And you could say, I was going here, and God preserved me. Someone said one time, what is a testimony? A salvation testimony or a testimony of God? What, what is a testimony? How do you define testimony? Well, you define a testimony this way. It's a story about how I fought with God and lost. All of us. I fought with God and lost. I fought with God and lost. Praise God. I fought with God and lost. I fought with God and lost. What is that mercy? Because God could have let us go our own way. God has not forgotten to be gracious. Look at his kindness. The book of Amos is heavy on judgment. Yes, I understand that. What are we to do as Christians? Any of you ever have a child who was afraid of the thunder and the lightning? And uh, think, of, um, think of the book of Amos as this thunderstorm that's going on outside. And this child is just stricken with absolute sheer terror. What am I... It's just all over the place. Maybe perhaps one strikes a tree in your backyard and the tree falls down. It's just all around you. What does that child do? That child runs up to mom or to dad and grabs on and has a death grip and will not let you go. <laughs> Ever experienced that before? Just will not let you, you know. Come on, get, hold on a second here. It just will not let you go. The strength of that child clings on. Let me suggest to us as Christians, I want to apply this Amos to Christians. What am I supposed to do with all this? Here's what Amos should do to you as a Christian. It should cause us to tighten our grip on Christ. We see the, the, the thunder, the lightning, trees exploding, the, the tornadoes coming, whatever you want to make it be. That's what Amos is. And there's this swift destruction that the Lord is coming through in his wrath, in his anger. And he is, he is coming through as a storm. And we begin to become fearful for a minute. And then we think, wait a second, wait a second. I have Christ. We tighten the grip. We hold on to him. We worship him. We praise him. We run to him. We go to him. We look at his word. We pray to him. We do all of these things because that is what it is like to tighten the grip on him. The book of Amos. uh, uh, Indeed, some people will read this book and say, no way I could serve a God like that. There are people who will and who do that. There are some Christians who try to keep some kind of attention that, uh, well, that's just the Old Testament, and this is the New Testament, this is different. Some people say we want to unhitch the Old Testament, want to just get rid of what was going on back then. I, I would suggest to us that the opposite is true. We should run to Scripture and the Old Testament more. 
Is this not mercy that we see in Amos? Is this not patience and forbearance and long-suffering and kindness? Christians should look at the hard portions of Scripture and take a hold of Christ and find him sweeter, better, and more delightful than we ever found him before. He is so much more to me in light of this. If you struggle with one of the besetting sins that I discussed in the opening, ungodly anger, ungodly sorrow, lust, whatever, I want to exhort you to run to Christ. We talked a little bit about what that means last week. To discipline yourself and your desires, to put a bridle on your desires, not in your own strength, but with the help of your loving Father. He will help equip you for that task. And in light of this, I have four points of application. Application number one, instead of terror, let your response to God's omnipresence be one of comfort and joy. In light of this, seek out his presence all the more, spending time with him through devotion and prayer. Remember we talked about this? Amos 9 on one side, Psalm 139 on the other side. Both teach God's omnipresence. The difference is one is a terror and one is a joy. As a Christian, find God's omnipresence to be a joy to you. Number two, urgently pursue evangelism with your coworkers, neighbors, friends, etc. in light of the imminent judgment of God. This storm is coming through. This will be a storm that no one will ever forget. The wrath of God. Warn them. Number three, put a bridle on your desires and submit your passions to the lordship of Christ walking by the Spirit so you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We have what we need. This is called sanctification. And if you struggle controlling your desires, emotions, wants, whatever, guess what? We have a church family who helps each other through this. Number four, rejoice and worship the Lord for his mercy and grace in preserving a remnant. Thank you, God, that you do preserve a remnant, that you're faithful in this way. Help us to look at this book and find encouragement and hope, knowing that you're faithful to us. In Christ's name, amen.